0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miss L&E, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: Miss Walsh used to turn her back, lift her skirt and adjust her suspenders. She had told us to tear a collar and she trusted us to put our heads down on the desk and go asleep until she ordered us to wake up again. But I used to peep from under my hair and catch her at it I was amazed that a grown up person a teacher could do such a thing I can still see the blue bloomers the pink flesh the white suspender and the brown stocking she'd bend over lift the skirt look over the shoulder to check that she was invisible undo the toggle and settle it into a more comfortable position then she'd straighten up and up came our heads, ready and waiting. Myra Boland, Clare Fitzpatrick, Mary Freeman, Paula McCullough, and me, sitting at our brown desks, two by two. Ink not yet in the inkwell, that excitement was to come. Dull green walls, and the sour smell of old milk and sandwiches. Monday ham, Tuesday cheese, Wednesday a bun, Thursday brawn, and Friday. Butter. She called us her tulips and scallywags, and if we didn't behave she said she'd hang us by our toenails out the window, but we were good girls, and much as I'd like to have, I never saw a girl hanging by her toenails, her skirt over her head and her knickers showing suspended overlooking the yard. Every Friday Miss Walsh would set us a spelling bee. This was the high point of the week for me. I looked forward to it eagerly. I was good at spelling and had cracked the code to difficult words like laughter and daughter. But it wasn't the joy of getting it right or being the best. It was the prize of the iced lolly you got if you got all your spellings right. An iced lolly. Long before fridges in every school, she would send out to the shop at the very last minute for three iced lollies. And first, second and third would take their pick. What colour would you like? The green one. I dreamed about a green iced lolly just about to melt the green slush sliding down my throat sticking to my lips then sculpting with my tongue a perfect oval that would fit comfortably all in one piece into my mouth once, twice, three times till my throat and palate was frozen and only my tongue could feel the sensation of the wooden stick I used to keep the stick and bring it home and show it to my mother. I got all my spellings right today, look! So desperate was my need for a green iced lolly that once I was confronted with a moral dilemma. Miss Walsh was calling out the spellings on Friday and all was going well. I was neck and neck with Clare Fitzpatrick, who sat beside me and was my chief rival for the green iced lolly. Then came a word I couldn't spell. My downfall... My nemesis. Neighbour. I was stumped. I knew I didn't know it. I knew that even by guessing I'd never get it right. My eyes swivelled. Clare Fitzpatrick didn't have the protective arm around her copy. The protective arm that says, Coggers, keep out. She was an open, trusting sort of a girl. One tilt of the head and I'd have it. Thump went my heart. Yes. No. Yes went my head. Yes. I saw it and in a flash I had copied it down. Miss Walsh wrote the spellings on the board. I ticked off each one. Correct, correct, correct. Hands up, who got them all right? Up went my hand. Up went Claire Fitzpatrick's hand. Kalinma Ma. What colour would you like? I didn't show the stick at home that day. I swear, I didn't feel guilty. I just never forgot.
2: Some years ago, a friend paid me a surprise visit. I have something I thought would interest you, he explained, handing me an old buckled volume. The buckling of the book appeared to be the result of immersion in water. The book had been published in 1865 by one Frederick H. Mares and showed scenes of Dublin and what was then called Kingstown. What made it unusual was the fact that the illustrations were not made from woodcuts or engravings, but were actually real photographs of very good quality, individually pasted onto the pages. The text appearing opposite the pictures was in conventional type print. It was, in fact, one of the earliest examples of photojournalism. But since the half-tone method of reproducing photographs in print was Still about 20 years in the future, the publisher of the book had no alternative but to use separate photographs. If the edition ran to, say, a 1,000 copies, and there are 20 illustrations per copy, that meant that 20,000 photo prints had to be individually hand-developed and printed, then separately placed in the books. Extremely labour-intensive, as contemporary jargon would have it. My friend's small children had found the book in the attic where they were playing, and what better fun than to pretend that the book was a boat and sail it in the water tank, also situated in the attic. Hence the buckle condition of the book. But since real photographs are actually washed in water as part of the final development process, these ones had survived a second watery ordeal without showing any sign of damage. And thus I came to own a small set of some of the best early photographs taken of Dublin. The only fault I can find is that the photographer wasted precious space giving us views of celebrated buildings like Trinity College, the Customs House and the Bank of Ireland, all of which we still have and will continue to have in future centuries. But he shows us nothing of the Liberties, say, or Night Town, the brothel quarter, which the Encyclopædia Britannica of about the same period of time described as being undoubtedly the worst slum in Europe. The seamy side of Dublin is just not shown. Photography was evidently a respectable business, for and about respectable persons. What a great pity. As it was, so perfect were the photographs, I was able to use them as illustrations on the cover of the dublin magazine which i was then editing photography was in its very early years in 1865 a little more than 20 years earlier fox talbot in england and the painter de guerre in france had simultaneously hit on the solution of making permanent the images seen in the camera obscura this camera without film had been in existence for centuries and was much used by artists particularly when expressing complex architectural detail and perspective. What Fox Talbot and Daguerre discovered was that certain metallic salts are sensitive to light and that light leaves its impression upon them. This was the origin of film as we know it. The process was made public in 1839 both Daguerre's and Fox Talbot's. Daguerre's was of finer quality, but his was one of these one-off processes, whereas Fox Talbot's used a paper negative from which could be obtained as many prints as were required. Before the year of 1839 was out, Daguerre's manual on his method had appeared in 30 editions and in six languages. The world was waiting breathlessly for photography, it seems. Ireland was in on the act early. A Belfast engraver named Francis S. Beatty, who had himself been working on methods of making permanent the images in his camera obscura, had abandoned these experiments as soon as he read Daguerre's manual and was producing his own daguerreotypes, as they were called, within a week of publication. The first person in the British Isles, he claimed, to have done so independent of the inventor. Poor Beatty, pioneer of Irish photography, died a pauper, aged 84, in the North Dublin Union and lies buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Jerome Cemetery. The first photographic studio, a gazebo of blue-tinted glass built directly over the entrance of what is now the Ambassador Cinema in O'Connell Street, was opened in 1841. Scores more were to follow. And yet there are no photographs left to us of the great national calamity, the famine of 1847. No photos of O'Connell's great meetings. No pictures of the departing coffin ships with their cargoes of human woe. History, even in the making, was not respectable enough, it seems, for the native photographers. But Matthew B. Brady, an Irish-American, commemorated with his camera the tremendous Holocaust of the American Civil War making himself into the first war photographer in the process it was the penny post and the postcard that finally released photography from its prison of respectability in Ireland most of our photographic past is based on the 40,000 plates taken by the photographer Robert French for his employer William Lawrence Dating from the 1880s, they were simply holiday postcards, but now stored in the National Library, they have been the most treasured heritage of scholar and historian.
3: dropped on my hometown of Berlin exploded. Many just plopped into the ground and waited there to be unearthed by pickaxe or shovel and for a second chance to wreak devastation. When, after the war, workers came across yet another one of these blind bombs, everyone dropped their tools, the area was cordoned off, and the Polizeifeuerwerker were called in, the bomb disposal unit of the Berlin police. In my time it consisted of just two men, Rebiger and Stefan. They were always mentioned together like Castor and Pollux or Laurel and Hardy. Often we saw them in our newspapers looking up at the camera from the bottom of a deep hole in the rubble, dwarfed by a particularly big one of those big rotten eggs they had rendered harmless. What kind of people were these men? What was it like to spend one's working life just a trembling of the hand away from total oblivion. I was then one of the amateur journalists who were editing our school magazine Die Lupe, the magnifying glass, and I commissioned myself to find the answers to these questions. My application to police headquarters for an interview received a reluctant reply. Normally not, uh, but they would make an exception for a school magazine. And please... No sensationalizing. They needn't have worried. Two weeks later, I was sitting across from Mr. Rebiger, the senior of the two man squad. His superior was also present to keep an eye on things. In a gesture, I felt of both pride and protection. Rebiger was not in his usual overalls, as I had naively expected, but was dressed in what looked like his Sunday uniform. He was obviously embarrassed by the situation and so, of course, was I facing one of the big city's most popular heroes. To be honest, he didn't cut a very dashing figure. A small, middle-aged, compact man with a neatly parted cap of dark hair and small, dark, quiet eyes. An animal came to mind. Yes, the sloth I had seen in the zoo moving imperceptibly irritatingly slowly upside down along a branch. The interview turned out to be heavy-going. rebiger was not a man of words or psychological analysis. My rather innocent teenagers' questions received awkward answers. Uh, no, they couldn't afford to be nervous. They prepared themselves as well as they could... It was a job that had to be done, that sort of thing. Soon I ran out of questions. The silence emanating from the man seemed to engulf the stuffy little room. The superior came to the rescue. Why not show the young man some of the tools they were using? Rebiger calmly agreed, took one instrument after another and gave its name and purpose. And then again this silence while he looked for a few seconds down on the thing before putting it carefully back in its proper place in the box. They were all coated in lead, he said, to prevent sparks. Lead, I thought, was the word. A dull colour, great weight, and no sparks at all. And then my interview was over. A farewell handshake, and I was back on the street rather crestfallen, I have to admit, how to write an exciting piece on the basis of such a dud of an interview. But then a memory rose in me, magnified, took hold of my consciousness and has remained there ever since. That final handshake, not a shake at all, in fact the absolute opposite. My hand had been gripped as if by one of the clamps he had shown me, The pressure had increased gradually up to a painful pitch and then again, ever so slowly and evenly, it had waned and my hand had been released. And there had been nothing demonstrative about it. I realised his hand had told me everything I had wanted to know. His set of mind, his craft, his secret it had even given me as a representative of his community a reassurance for the future here was a man of poor words but with good hands
4: I stepped into an antique shop recently and found myself surrounded by clocks of every description, all ticking and talking at their own paces and no two faces showing the same time. The sight reminded me of the dresser in my grandmother's kitchen years ago, which never had fewer than three clocks on the shelves. It was impossible to tell the correct time from any of them. The only certainty was that the slowest one, was at least an hour and a half fast. The reason for this I never discovered, but each clock was treated with uncommon respect and carefully wound every night at bedtime. Perhaps such behaviour arose from the ease with which we, as a nation, treated time before we became conscious of how materially important each moment is. Indeed, some of the old habits infuriatingly linger on. In those days, functions started when everybody had arrived and ended when everybody had left. This characteristic was aided by the various computations of time. Many of you, I'm sure, remember old time, new time, local time, and that phenomenon of the war years, double summer time. Who could be blamed for being confused? A concert in the parish hall advertised to start at 8 o'clock, might be intended to commence at 7, or 20 to 8, or 8, or 9 o'clock, and it usually did. People did not carry watches in those days, apart from bank clerks, teachers and railwaymen. For the first two, this may have had a status value. The last group simply used them to calculate how late the train would be. I knew of only one exception to this norm, a man called Frank, whom I now think was one of the last of a particular rural character breed. Winter or summer, Frank wore a waistcoat and had a watch, a big shining pocket watch lodged in the waistcoat and attached to it by an unnecessarily heavy chain to the second buttonhole from the top. It was an open secret that the watch had a dial but neither hands nor inner workings. Nevertheless, several times during each day, when Frank might be footing turf or tying sheaves of thistly oats, he would straighten up, draw out the watch with exaggerated ceremony, flip open the cover with his thumbnail, gaze at the face and, unfailingly, make the same remark. Good God, is that the time it is? The rest of us depended on the Angelus Bell in the church, which might ring at 6 o'clock or 5 or 20 to 6 or 7. It didn't really matter. Time wasn't that important.
5: A tiny child, I stood at the window gazing with hypnotised concentration at the puddles on the paving outside. Lances of summer rain gouged craters in the surface of the puddles while perfect hemispheres of bubbles formed, each crater and each bubble gone as fast as it appeared. Nothing in my concentration could prevent their constant destruction and reappearance. Later, slightly older, I remember running into a tin-roofed shed at the onset of a shower of rain, not so much for the shelter as to listen to the drumming of the rain upon the roof. Have you noticed how bed is never so comfortable as when wind and rain are battering the window? Round about nine years old, my notion of world was suddenly stretched. If I had thought of it at all, all that happened to me happened for the whole world. Sitting on a country bus that followed the road wrapped around the wrinkles in a Welsh mountain, I saw, across the valley, a shower of rain. The thick cloud and the veil of silvered grey that it dragged across the fields amazed me. Gazing through the dry windows of the bus, I realised the rain was falling somewhere else, not on the bus, or on the road, or even on this side of the valley. The quality of rain, like mercy, took longer to appreciate. The rain that falls in a thunderstorm has an urgency as it rushes earthwards to escape the power of the lightning and the threat of the thunder. How exciting I've always found these storms. Now middle-aged, my world was stretched again a few weeks ago during a visit to Africa. My experience of thunderstorms has always been in hill or mountain country where forked lightning slithers down its jagged path from sky to earth. In desert country, flat and featureless, lightning finds no elevated point of entry to the earth, so it stabs its neighbouring clouds and its path is horizontal to the earth's surface. But the rain's the same, heavy and hurried. Other desert showers have different characters. The drops are even slow to fall. Widely spaced, they make individual disks of darkness on the ground that the parched air laps away to dryness before the next slow drop can hit the ground. So, with no welcoming similar moisture there to draw it down, the rain falls reluctantly. At home in the hills of Donegal, the bases of the clouds are torn on successive peaks of rock and bog, dragging the immature raindrops from their womb of mist to form a soft day, thank God. The drifting baby droplets caress the face with deceptive gentleness, but penetrate the clothes to drench the body skin as surely as thunder rain. But when the clouds have passed, the rainbow gone and the sun shines clear on all I see, I realise those limpid, glittering drops of rain have painted Ireland her forty shades of green.
3: It's the rain.
6: The first time I met Frank O'Connor was in Stevens Green. The time, mid-morning in the late 40s. He lay sprawled, one elbow supporting his angled frame on the dark green bench opposite the bust of James Clarence Mangan. An aureole of bright red berries softened the severity of the poet's stone visage. I was 18 then, with more sap than sense. Anxious to impress the illustrious corkman, I began, Mr. O'Connor, Look up there at the sky. Wouldn't the clouds remind you of a bundle of old sheep? He sat bolt upright, jerked his leonine head as if he hadn't heard me all right, paused in momentary bemusement, and focused the frost of his brilliant eyes upon me. Where are you from? The words rolled out sonorously with the resonance of a Paul Robeson. Uh, I'm from Kerry, Mr. O'Connor. Hmm, he confided to a mangan's bust. Kerry, Kerry they're always blathering. That dismissive judgment pronounced, he began to sing in a rich bass voice, and curia the accursed kerryman. His Irish was glorious, or should I say, mointia, for which, of course, there is no adequate English equivalent. I was about to pass on when he suddenly arrested me, the frost and the hazel eyes giving place to something like sunlight. Sit down, sit down, how bloody touchy you are. Whereupon I promptly sat down beside him. Blathering is all very well in its way. The trouble is, it's transient, like froth. There followed an hour's exquisite disquisition, an hour that for me will always be part of time past, time present and time to come. He was as mercurial as a drop of quicksilver. No, he never put his friends in his stories. Friends were friends and friendship was sacred. But there was one execrable booby he ought to have satirized, mentioning a certain politician, an old dog's body who labored under a delusion that he was the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. However, O'Connor had found the catalyst for his hopeless indignation in the poem, The Patriot. Some think when the sod is laid on them, they're finished with me, but little they know me, the traitors, I'll drag them, you see, To my own private general judgment, I'll sit on my throne. The Almighty may choose to give mercy, but I will give none. Ye think you'll escape me? Tis true that my sight's a bit shook. I was never no hand with a pen, but I'll write one terrible book. Before, with gun carriage and pipers, ye dastardly crew, ye bring to his grave in Glasnevin the one man that was true. Here was speaking the passionate O'Connor who had defended the lovable Taylor and Anstey of Gugonbara against some holy hooligans of the church and the educated blackguards of the sovereign Irish state. That had taken moral courage and loving-heartedness, his very greatest qualities in my opinion, traits sprung from instinctive spirituality as distinct from mere penny-catechism religion. It was the eternal Christian innocent and in Frank O'Connor ...that made him tilt at so many nationally accepted but mildewing windmills, mills. Sean O'Foylon has best described this. He was like a man who takes a machine gun to a shooting gallery. Everybody falls flat on his face. The proprietor at once takes to the hills. And when it is all over and you cautiously peep up... ...you find that O'Connor has wrecked the place but got three perfect bull's eyes. Don Quixote would have enjoyed O'Connor that morning in the green like a charger snorting for battle, that is if you can conceive of a charger with horn-rimmed spectacles, a bristling mustache and a sensitive face, he turned to the battleground of the theater. Sick of the endless intrigue and the bluffing to the medium, he had resigned as a director of the Abbey Theater in 1939. How did he see the theater now? Suffering God, we still haven't invented a literature of dramatic criticism. We haven't a Coleridge or a Hazlitt. Look at F.J. McCormick in the Abbey. Brilliant performances, every other play. But where is the critic to recall them for posterity or to compliment them with matching criticisms? And what's happening to the Irish voice? How do you mean, Mr. O'Connor? All this heartless elocution, everybody sounding alike, all the warmth strangled, the individuality neutered. And why the blazes do they have to imitate the pale, anemic accents of the West End? The derivative delinquents, I call them. You don't hear your civilized Londoner being ashamed of his own or of his country's accents, but of course, he has a tradition going back to Shakespeare and Marlowe. He went on to tell me how he had written the road to Stratford, but, but why Stratford? Why not the Abbey? Why does the Mohammedan go to Mecca? There was a pause while the last Elizabethan lit another cigarette. I noticed he was a chain smoker. Just then, a tinker shuffled around the bend of the path and drew himself up in front of us. Would you have to break the thirst, sir? O'Connor emptied out a trousers pocketful of silver and he gave it to him. When the gratified mendicant had shuffled off, the great man turned to me. That was a perfect sentence. Would you have to break the thirst? Honest, forthright, terse. No fear of him talking about the clouds being like a bundle of old sheep. That man is technique, a bloody artist. And the rich laughter came gurgling out of him. Suddenly, he rose to take leave of me. He caught my hand in a firm, warm grip. Sing of what you know, and cultivate your native woodnots wild. With that, Frank O'Connor was gone, his brisk steps leaving no echoes behind. And would you believe it? There wasn't a cloud in sight.
0: On this morning's selection from the Sunday Miscellany Archives, we heard The Spelling Bee by Nula Hayes, first broadcast in 1997. On Old Photographs was by John Ryan, and that was from 1982. Good Hands by Peter Yankowski was from 1996. Aidan Carney's Telling the Time was first broadcast in 1990. Rain by Judith Hode from 1996 and Meeting Frank O'Connor was by Eamon Keane from a 1975 Sunday Miscellany. The music was By a Spring in the Park by Sibelius performed by the Berlin Philharmonic. Picture Book by the Kinks. Fantasia in A Minor by Henry Purcell performed by the Doric String Quartet. The second movement of Concerto No. 7 in B-flat major from La Cetra by Vivaldi and Rain by the Beatles, sung by Petula Clark. The programme was compiled and produced by Lorcan and Clancy. Elaine Conlon is the broadcast coordinator of Sunday Miscellany and the series producer is Sarah Binchy. If you'd like to find out more about the programme and other arts and culture programmes on RTE, take a look at our website. It's rte.ie slash culture. And of course, you'll find this morning's programme there too or on the RTE radio app. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.